read chapter 5. The word of God where it says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the, of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man... How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and the life of all people, for all people. For just as though the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also, through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you that uh, we have the good news of what you have accomplished in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you that uh, those words that we've just read speak 
uh, voluminously about that. Uh, and we ask that as we meditate on them and reflect on them, that you would open our eyes uh, to see your glory and our ears to hear uh, of your wonder. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. I don't know uh, whether you've noticed it or not, but new circumstances in life don't always translate to uh, new ways of understanding or new ways of living life. So, for instance, people who get married don't suddenly uh, leave the church and the moment the wedding's over kind of fall into living uh, according to a new way of life. Uh, often the problem is actually that uh, for years after people get married, they can continue to live according to the patterns that they've established as a single person. They uh, continue to live as though they're the uh, only person that matters, rather than realising that uh, they're now part of a relationship uh, of two people. The new reality of life, uh, of marriage, doesn't immediately lead to uh, a new way of living in the light of that reality. In the same way, when you turn 18, you don't suddenly become a responsible adult. Uh, we might like to think uh, that that's what happens, uh, but the truth is that it takes time, doesn't it, to learn what that means. What does it mean to live as an adult? Uh, you need to learn uh, to do things that you've never had to think about before, like earning money to support yourself, paying the rent, uh, buying a house or whatever it is. Uh, In the same way, when we first entrust ourselves to Jesus, when we first come to know God in Jesus, uh, and we're reconciled to God, we're adopted into God's family, although our uh, circumstances change, our way of living and our way of understanding life doesn't sort of instantaneously uh, transform. It takes time. We need to learn what it means to live out of the reality of what God has done in Jesus. What does it mean to know God in Jesus? What does that mean? And in Romans 5, Paul begins really for the first time in this letter, he's written a letter to the, to the Christians who are living in Rome, and, uh, and for the first time in that letter, he's beginning to think about how the deep truths of the gospel shape our lives. How does knowing uh, that we're forgiven by God uh, and accepted by God, how does that change the way that we live, the way that we think about ourselves? The chapter begins with a grand statement of one of the big implications of God's salvation plan in Jesus. Verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. The peace which Paul is talking about is not the feeling of peace, although uh, I guess that flows out of it. Rather, he's picking picking up on the fact that apart from Christ, we're at war with God. We're God's enemies uh, because of the way that we've treated God. We're we're estranged from God. We're under God's wrath because we constantly live lives that reject God, that uh, ignore God, that reject God's uh, way and God's plan and purpose for the world. But Paul says that if we've uh, entrusted ourselves to Jesus, if we've come to know Jesus, that we now have peace with God. We were at war, now we have peace. The war's over, we're no longer enemies, that's because we've been justified. That is, God has declared us to be righteous and innocent, even in the face of the lives that we've been living. 
in a sense, uh, you see, the end of war isn't enough to bring peace to a relationship. So at the end of World War II, a number of key figures were rounded up after the war ended. They were rounded up and they were put on trial at Nuremberg. Uh, they were put on trial for crimes against humanity. So even though the war was over and the peace treaties had been signed, those people were still guilty of their crimes. It wasn't enough, you see, just for the war to end. Their crimes uh, that they had committed still needed uh, to be dealt with. Paul says that we have peace with God because not only is our war with God over through Jesus, but through Jesus' death and resurrection, we've been acquitted. Jesus has taken a penalty that we deserved and that means that we can go free. Jesus has been vindicated as being blameless and we share in that uh, by being swept up in him. But the problem of uh, our problem with God, if you like, is not only a legal problem that is guilty, uh, you know, worthy of blame because of what we've done, Our problem is also relational. So it's not uncommon in places where there's been war for distrust to kind of simmer on for years after the war has ended. For years people were distrustful of Germany or distrustful of Japan because of what had happened during the Second World War. Uh, You go to places in the Middle East, people are distrustful over things that have happened decades ago, centuries ago. Someone once told me a story about a guy, he was working for the UN, it was in a book, he was working for the UN and he went to Afghanistan, I think it was, and they'd come to liberate the people and the people were weeping with tears of joy and he asked why they were so ecstatic you know, and what they were so upset about, what had caused them such distress and it was the invasion of Alexander the Great. <laughs> Back in... You know, Back in BC, they, they were still living kind of under the, under the felt distress uh, of what had happened to their people uh, millennia ago. Uh, and there are many places in the world where you go, you go to countries and there's deep hostility between them uh, and others living in that same country or, or neighbouring countries as well. Even just in our personal relationships, uh, if someone has hurt us or if we've hurt somebody else, the ramifications of that can last a lifetime. Uh, you might kind of sign the peace treaty, as it were, but it's not so easy to heal the damage and to move past that. But the Bible says it's not like that with God. In Jesus, the war is over once and for all and the relationship is actually healed. It's healed instantaneously. In Christ, our relationship with our Heavenly Father, with our Creator God, immediately takes on a new nature. It takes on uh, the similar nature of Jesus' relationship with His Heavenly Father, a relationship where there's no distrust, no animosity, no fear of alienation. We have peace with God because, Paul says in verse 10, we've been reconciled to God through the death of Jesus. We have peace with God in Uh, Every sense through Jesus, we're no longer God's enemies. The record of the charges which stood against us has been rubbed out. We've been reconciled to God and we've been adopted as one of his own children. That is, he loves us and we belong to him. 
it's not just that the war is over, do you see, and we've signed a peace treaty. The good news of the gospel is that it's almost as if the war never even happened. So comprehensively has God dealt with uh, the war between us and him that it's as though it never even happened. But the truth is, I think, that though we might know that, that doesn't always change and affect the way that we live or the way that we relate to God. So you might really trust Jesus, uh, but you live the Christian life as if you're treading on eggshells. You find it hard to be honest with God, uh, with where you're really at, because you're worried about whether or not he'll accept you. Uh, you. And you kind of expect God to lash out at you at any moment. Uh, or you pray to God, but you don't really expect God to answer prayer because you still think of God as being hostile to you. After all, how could how could God forget what you did 20 years ago? Or how you lived 20 years ago? Or how could God even forget what you did yesterday? And how you fell back into that way of life, that sin uh, that you thought you'd put behind you. In fact, maybe in the end you don't pray at all. Just You just kind of avoid speaking with God because you're pretty sure that he won't listen anyway. But the Bible says that we can come to God with boldness, with confidence, because we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. We don't have to worry about whether he'll accept us on the basis of how we live today or how we lived yesterday. We're accepted because we're in Christ, because we know Jesus and we trust him. Which is not to say there aren't bumps in the relationship, right? Uh, It's not to say that there aren't times when we disappoint God or hurt God because of our sin, but none of that changes our standing with him. We're still his children. We've still been adopted into his family. He still loves us. He still works all things together for the good of those who love him. We have peace with God uh, if we are in Christ. But not only do we have peace with God, Paul goes on to say in the second half of verse 2, Uh, We also boast in the hope of the glory of God. We boast in the expectation of what God has promised to do. Like you might boast in receiving a fantastic gift. You'll never guess what I was given the other day. It's the most unbelievable gift that anyone's ever given me. They gave me a new car, a Toyota Corolla. It's amazing. You wouldn't believe it. (laughs) It's the best car you could ever dream of owning. Uh, And it's silver grey. It's beautiful. We boast, don't we, when someone gives us a great gift. We both we get excited about it. And Paul says here that we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We, hope, we boast in the gift that God has given us in Jesus. But what, what is that exactly? What is the hope of the glory of God? Well, the hope of the glory of God is the hope of sharing in God's glory in the, in the world put right, in the new creation. Now, it's the hope of being remade uh, as, a, as a perfect human being in the image of Christ through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. So Paul says in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. 
Not only do we have peace with God, but we have the hope of sharing in the glory of God in Christ. As human beings, we long for glory. We long for fame or for significance or for beauty. We buy magazines with beautiful people on the front because, or, or, or successful people or famous people. We do it not because we kind of dispassionately admire them, or that, that's what we might say. It's like, oh, I'm really interested in their life. I'm uh, just really interested in, uh, in who they are and what makes them tick. We do it not because we're dispassionately interested, but because we want to be like them. Not necessarily in a craven way, uh, but, but, it, but we look at them and we go, wow, that, I, I long for a significant life. I long for a beautiful life, a meaningful life. Why do we buy the same footy boots as our favourite football player? Or why do we uh, get the same hairdo as the person that we see on, on, on television? Uh, or why do we uh, buy the same appliance uh, as our favourite celebrity chef? Why do we buy the blast chiller uh, you know, that, that's used on every episode of MasterChef? It's because we want to be like those people, isn't it? The problem is, I think, that although we long for glory, we aim for the wrong kind of glory. We aim for a glory which is fading, which is passing away, which is uh, empty and which can often be superficial. The Bible says that true glory and beauty is found in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the image of the invisible God. Even atheists, uh, even people who don't believe the Bible look at Jesus and think that he was a pretty remarkable man. And the Bible says that if we know Jesus, actually we're becoming more and more like him every day. The Apostle Paul says elsewhere that by beholding Jesus, we're being transformed into his image by the Holy Spirit with ever-increasing glory. When you see someone who's remodeled their life on their favorite footy player or their uh, favorite uh, master chef or whoever it is, it's interesting but forgettable, isn't it? It's like, oh, well, it's, that's nice, nice for them. It's pretty uninspiring. But I think when you see someone who's becoming more and more like Jesus, it's a great miracle. When you see someone taking on the patience of Jesus, or the kindness of Jesus, or the generosity of Jesus, or the love that Jesus had for his heavenly Father, or the passionate zeal that Jesus had for holiness, when you see that kind of transformation in someone's life, it's remarkable, it's beautiful, it's glorious. We boast in the hope of glory, says Paul. But extraordinarily, the hope of the glory of God is not just a distant hope, it's not just far off in the distance Beyond our gaze, Paul goes on to say that the hope of glory is already breaking into the present. And that the truth of that radically alters the way that we view the world and the way especially that we view suffering. You see, he says that the hope of the glory of God is breaking into our world, not in, uh, not in, 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 easy, in an easy life, but actually through suffering. 
He says in verse 3, not only so, that is, not only do we boast in the hope of the glory of God, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The grace of God and the hope of the glory of God is so transforming, so all-consuming, so extraordinary, that it not only gives us a hope for the future, but it transforms the difficulties of our present life now into a cause for rejoicing. Why is that? It's because through them, God is making us more like Jesus. Through them, we're being conformed more and more to the death of Christ in order that we might also share in the resurrection of Christ. So through our suffering, God is producing perseverance. He's training us to keep going, to keep pursuing him, to keep living for him. And through perseverance, God is producing character. He's changing our nature. He's making us more kind, more gentle, more trusting, more humble, more generous, more patient. And through character, God is producing the hope, the hope of one day being like Christ, the hope of one day being free from sin, the hope of one day being free from character flaws, from lovelessness, from defeatism, from selfishness, from pride. And that hope, Paul says, is not an empty hope. It's not, it won't prove vain. We won't, we won't be disappointed by it. It won't prove empty because God has already poured his love uh, into us through the Holy Spirit. That is, as God uses those trials to make us more like Jesus, as the hope of the future invades the present, as we become more and more assured of God's love and kindness toward us, uh, we become more convinced that the hope of God uh, is a true hope uh, and a living hope uh, at work in us now. As we see God changing us, we become more and more assured of God's love toward us. And so we rejoice, even in our sickness, because our sickness is teaching us humility. Or we rejoice as we stare down the barrel of death, because God is teaching us to number our days and to live each day in reference to God. We rejoice amid disappointment, because God is teaching us to value him above everything else. We rejoice in loss because God is teaching us to store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy. We rejoice in failure because God is teaching us that success is not in our hands but in God's hands. We rejoice when we're humbled by sin in our lives because God is teaching us that salvation is not based on how good we do but it's based on the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We rejoice in suffering because God is teaching us that he's not against us, but actually that he loves us very, very much. It's not that we rejoice afterwards. That's not what Paul is saying. It's not that we suffer and then we look back later and we go, well, didn't God do amazing things like that? But actually Paul is saying that, that knowing these truths transform the reality as we experience it. Even in the midst of pain, joy breaks through the gloom because we know that God is doing us good. And we know that the hope of glory is invading our lives. And we know that God loves us very, very much. We think 
that joy and suffering can't go together. But actually the truth is more complex than that. We're complex beings. And when we know the truth of God, of what God's doing in our lives, joy breaks in uh, and invades the suffering of our present reality. So this passage helps us to rejoice, to boast in the benefits of what God has done through Christ, what we share in in Jesus. But next it goes on to show the rock-solid confidence that we have in our relationship uh, to God. So Paul says in verse 6, You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says the most extraordinary thing about the gospel is that God loved us while we were still sinners. He says it's not unusual that a person, one person would die for another. We see that in war, don't we? We see amazing examples of, of bravery and love and service and dedication. Uh, it's not unusual for someone to die for somebody else, especially if that person is uh, well-loved and well-liked. But what's completely unheard of is someone dying for their worst enemy or someone dying for a, a really evil person. Uh, just think even in terms of money rather than kind of life. Uh, if a child in the local community, for instance, is diagnosed with a really serious illness, people are often pretty generous, aren't they, in providing financial support for that person and their family, uh, especially if there's kind of a treatment which is available but is beyond their uh, capacity to afford, then people are, are extremely generous in, in helping them to, uh, to be able to access that. But suppose for a moment that the same thing happens to someone who's a convicted rapist, uh, and there's an ad in the newspaper. It says, you know, convicted rapist uh, needs money to raise money for treatment. You know, how, mu how much money do you think would be raised for that? I'm pretty confident that the amount of money raised for that appeal would be close to, if not exactly zero. But you see, the message of the gospel is that we're convicted criminals, that God doesn't just uh, donate a little bit of money to us, but he sends his own son to die for us so that we might, we might live. We were his enemies. There's a distorted version of the gospel that sometimes kind of gets peddled around that says something like, the good news is that God looks at you and he sees you as so beautiful, so wonderful, uh, that he... That he uh, sends Jesus to die for us. Well, that's, that's not good news, actually. Because you only have to look at your life and to see, that, see even after just looking for a little bit, that there are things in our hearts and our lives, in our past and our present. There are reasons that would make God not love us. If, if God's love is based on what kind of good people we are, then that's actually hopeless. That's a cause for despair. But if God's love is based on his love which triumphs over our evil, triumphs over our corruption, triumphs over our lovelessness, triumphs over our rejection of him, 
triumphs over our indifference toward him, then that's good news. And that good news of what God has done has implications then for our ongoing relationship with God. Paul draws those out in verses 9 and 10. He says, Since now we've been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? That is, if God loved us when we were his enemies, if Christ died for us when we were hostile to God, estranged from God, if Christ died for us when we were guilty and deserving of condemnation, then how much more certain is our ultimate vindication on the last day, given that we're now loved by God? Or to put it another way, if Jesus has died for you at your worst, what can possibly separate you now from God's love? What can undermine your salvation? And yet I think we often view things in completely the, the opposite way. So you might think, well, God couldn't forgive me for the things that I did before I was a Christian, but he can't forgive me for the things that I've done after I became a Christian. God forgive, could forgive me for not trusting him when I wasn't a Christian, but he can't forgive me now for not trusting him. He could forgive me for being greedy when I wasn't a Christian. He could forgive me for lying when I wasn't a Christian. He could forgive me for cheating when I wasn't a Christian. He could forgive me for sexual immorality or stealing. But surely he can't forgive me for those things now that I'm a Christian. Surely God will give up on me. Surely I'll get to the day of judgment and discover that God has changed his mind. He'll say, well, there was a time when I loved you, but then... No, Paul says exactly the opposite, doesn't he? He says, if Christ died for you when you were God's enemies, then how much more will the life of Christ avail for you now that you're part of God's family? If God is for us, who can be against us, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8? Who can separate us from the love of God? Shall famine or hardship or nakedness or trial? No. Anything in heaven and earth? No. Because Christ died for us when we were his enemies. And now God, does, God loves us as his children. So this passage helps us to boast in the benefits of being vindicated by God through Jesus. It shows us the rock-solid confidence that we can have in our relationship to God. And finally, it also explains how the work of Jesus has kind of achieved this gift. In the last half of chapter 5, Paul shows how what Jesus has done, if you like, fits like a kind of a piece of the puzzle. It fits and undoes our shared condemnation. Uh, through Adam. So he shows that there's a kind of symmetry in the cause of our human predicament 
and God's rescue in Jesus. First, he explains how sin and death entered the world and condemned us all. He says in verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Paul's thinking back to Genesis chapter 3, uh, and he says that when Adam sinned, the whole world was plunged into chaos. When Adam disobeyed God, uh, sin and death flooded the world. And we all live with the consequences of that. We don't need to be convinced of that. We can see it. We can see the, uh, the evil that lives in the hearts of human beings, the evil that we perpetrate against other people, and the evil that other people perpetrate against us. We can see that death has flooded our world because we know it, don't we? We face the death of the people that we love. We face our own death. But it's not just that we're punished for what somebody did thousands and thousands of years ago, but rather sin and death have taken a hold of our lives too. And each of us stand condemned before God just as Adam did for our own sin. Paul says in Ephesians, uh, in another letter, apart from Christ, we're dead in our transgressions and sins. We're dead. In fact, the Bible says we're slaves to sin. Sin and death have taken hold of our lives. We've become people corrupted from the very first moment of our lives and opposed to God. And in that way, we're all condemned. And yet it's precisely that condition, says Paul, that Jesus has undone. Jesus has undone in his own person. He says in verse 15, But the gift of God in Jesus is not like the trespass. For if the many die by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one act, uh, one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. What Paul's saying is that the work of Jesus on the cross turns back the clock on Adam's sin. Just as Adam's one act of disobedience brought death, Jesus' one act of obedience brought life. Just as one, Adam's one act of disobedience brought condemnation, Jesus' obedience in death brings acquittal and freedom and release and forgiveness. Just as Adam's one act of disobedience made us all corrupt and opposed to God in our deepest desires, so Jesus' one act of obedience makes us righteous. Jesus does what we long for but can never do. In the 80s, the 1980s, which some of us might remember better than others, the uh, singer Sure had a hit song. We might want to forget it, but she did. 
Uh, and the song was this, If I Could Turn Back Time. Does anyone remember that song? Does anyone remember the video clip? Uh. But you know, that song that she's saying, the words of that song are a microcosm, really, of, of the reality of life. She's saying, if I could turn back time, if I could find a way, I'd take back those words that hurt you and you'd stay. If I could reach the stars, I'd give them all to you. Then you'd love me. Love me like you used to do, if I could turn back time. So how do you turn back time on a broken relationship? A relationship's been devastated just by words. It's so true, isn't it? The simplest things can devastate a relationship for a lifetime. How do you turn back the clock on that? Often you can't. Often there's no way back. So how do you turn back the time on a devastated and destroyed relationship with the God who made us? How do you turn that back? Just words are enough to destroy it. Let alone everything else that we've done against God. How do you undo that? How do you turn back time? How do you turn the clock back? The reality is that we can't, can we? We can't live as though, we can't just live as though it never happened. No relationship works like that. But the promise of the gospel is a remarkable miracle. That in the person of Jesus, God turns back the clock. So it's as though none of all that pain that we caused to God and to others ever happened. God in Jesus undoes our sin. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, describes the deep magic of Aslan's death as being that death itself would start working backwards. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Of the hope of the gospel. And in the death of Jesus, death and all the evil of our world starts being undone, unknit from our lives, unknit from our world. But it's not just Jesus' death that worked backwards. Jesus' obedience undoes our disobedience. Jesus' death undoes our condemnation. And Jesus' resurrection undoes our death. Just as the one act of disobedience of the one man, Adam, swept out and engulfed us all in ruin, so too the victory of Jesus sweeps out like a flood and engulfs us all in glory if we receive him and entrust ourselves to him. God's work in Jesus is greater than our ruin. And there's no brokenness and no corruption beyond God's power in Jesus. And there's no condemnation beyond God's work in Jesus. And there's no personal history beyond God's ability to unwrite in Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, says Paul, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you can turn back time, unknit the reality of our past, unknit the reality of our hard hearts, of our selfish hearts, unknit the reality of those words that we've spoken against you in contempt of you, those things that we've done in rejection of you, in ignorance of you, in indifference toward you. Lord, we know deep down the pain that those things causes to us when people treat us in that way. Lord, we can only imagine the pain, the hurt, the anger, the frustration of you as a God who rules over an entire world of people indifferent and ignorant of you. But you are not like us. You have great patience. And you meet our evil with love and mercy and compassion. You sent your own son Jesus Christ to die when we were your enemies. And to offer to us reconciliation and forgiveness and mercy and hope. And Lord, we pray that each one of us would receive that in Christ and know that, that, know that peace which comes in Jesus. Lord, turn back the time on our sin, we pray in Jesus Christ. Amen.